You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. I want to remind, remind you, this is not news to members of this church, but it is our single-minded ambition to stand under God's word, not over it. We believe that God's word is prophetic, that we need to hear it. We need our hearts needed, our minds needed, our lives need to be shaped by this word. We are tired at this point in the, in the week, we are tired of the wisdom of man, amen? We need God's wisdom now to inform us, to influence us, to shape us for his glory and our joy. So... Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. Verse 15, no one, or 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Beloved, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. As I mentioned, we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And though this is a short passage of Scripture before us, this is a vital portion of Christ's own teaching in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been for some time now in the gospel of Matthew absorbing an onslaught of criticism from those who are doubtful of the authority that he claims. It's been an onslaught of criticism, and all of this criticism really reached its boiling point last week in our text when Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. You'll remember the story, the paralytic comes in, carried by his four friends, and he is seeking a healing from Christ. His four friends work really hard to get their friend in, the, in front of Jesus. They, they carry him up some stairs, they bring him through the roof, and instead of healing this man right away, Jesus instead decides to forgive him of his sins. At which point the scribes and, and those in religious leadership tear their cloaks and they ask the question, who can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, knowing their thoughts, begins to address their criticism. What's easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But I say that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to this man, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Not only did we witness Christ's authority last week to forgive sins, but another wave of criticism hit Christ as Christ was reclining at table with sinners and tax collectors. These were Matthew's friends. And he just seemed so relaxed with them, didn't he? 
he's sitting there, he's reclining at table and, and the Pharisees come in and they say to Jesus' disciples, how, how does he sleep with himself? How does, he, how does he sleep at night having dinner, reclining at the table with sinners and tax collectors? This, this seems like odd behavior for a rabbi. But Jesus, overhearing the Pharisees' criticism, says to them, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Like the great physician that he is, he comes for those who are sin sick and in need of salvation. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is hit with a third wave of criticism. First, there was the criticism of his authority over Uh, his ability to forgive sins, then his criticism of of dining with tax collectors and sinners, and now he's hit with a third wave of criticism. But but this criticism comes from some unlikely sources. This criticism comes from John the Baptist's own disciples. From Luke's account, we come to understand that John's disciples are also accompanied by the Pharisees, but it's John's disciples who lead in this criticism. And John's disciples are an unlikely source of criticism because it was John the Baptist himself, you'll remember, at the inauguration of Christ's earthly ministry, who said, John the Baptist, the great of the Old Testament prophets, says, this man is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. It was John the Baptist who first introduced this idea of the bridegroom who has come for his bride. It was John the Baptist who said, you need to listen and follow him, not me. It was John the Baptist who said, I must decrease and he must increase. So this is an unlikely source of criticism. These are John the Baptist's disciples. It seems that after John the Baptist's arrest, at least some of his disciples became doubtful of Jesus' authority and began to sympathize with the Pharisees in their criticism of Christ. But as we've seen in previous sections, Jesus uses their criticism as an opportunity to teach about the gospel of the kingdom. He uses their criticism to teach them something far greater and something far deeper than what they were bringing to him in the short run. But before we get to Jesus' teaching about this kingdom and this new covenant era that he's going to shine light on, let's look at the criticism. Look at verse 14 with me. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So we can almost see this criticism coming, can't we? After the Pharisees criticized Jesus with eating, for eating with tax collectors and sinners, after that criticism kind of falls flat, the logic of this next criticism seems to take shape. Okay, maybe him eating with sinners and tax collectors isn't the big deal, but have you noticed how much this man, Jesus, eats? Yeah, he eats with whomever he wants, but have you noticed that he's always eating? Yeah, you know, come to, come to find out, I've hardly, if ever, have seen him and his disciples fasting. They're never fasting, they're always feasting. And so we can start to see this next wave of criticism forming after Jesus eats at the table with tax collectors and sinners. 
Now, the question around fasting, despite whatever their motivation, the question around fasting is a good question. Fasting was a normative part of weekly life in first century Judaism. Fasting, like it functions today, was a way to stimulate the soul's longing for the Lord by denying the flesh of its immediate craving. That's what fasting is. Have you ever been curious about what, is, what, is, what do we mean biblically when we mean by fasting? Fasting is a way to stimulate the soul's longing for the Lord by denying the flesh its immediate cravings. Fasting is a good discipline that serves to enhance one's dependence on the Lord. When that craving ache comes in, it's a reminder that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Fasting was a good discipline then in the first century, and it is a good discipline today. However, during Jesus' earthly ministry, his critics were seeing that not only did he eat with whoever he wanted to, his, his, his invite list was far more wide than any of the Pharisees or scribes would feel comfortable. Not only did he eat with whoever he wanted to, he also ate all of the time. <laughs> it, was this, it was as if there was this perpetual celebration or feast that was following Jesus wherever he went. This is why I've said to you guys for years now, the potluck is a Christian thing. That's our, that's our invention, or rather, that's Christ's invention. And so I'm on, a, I'm, on a, uh, I'm on a crusade to make potlucks great again. And so John's disciples asked the question, why? Why do, the, do us and the Pharisees fast all the time? And at this point in Judaism, they had not just taken the one fast a year, they had taken th this fasting idea into multiple times a week, multiple times a month. And they're asking themselves, why do, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you don't seem to fast? And Jesus responds to the criticism about fasting by giving three parables or teachings that serve to illustrate both why he and his disciples are not fasting. And on how all of this relates to redemptive history. Again, he's going to answer their question, and then he's going to give them an answer that they weren't looking for. He's going to start a dialogue that they weren't even anticipating. In other words, like the paralytic who was looking for a healing, Jesus is about to give John's disciples more than what they were asking for. And the first parable is the main one. It is the main answer to their question. Look at verse 15 again. And Jesus said to them, verse 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So first, listen, Jesus is making a connection between fasting and mourning. Jesus is making a connection between fasting and mourning. He says, fasting at a most fundamental level is helpful when one is desiring something that they cannot fully realize. Fasting is a form of longing for something more, something better, something more satisfying. Fasting, again, denies the things that are seen so that the soul can feast on the things that are unseen and most important. 
And therefore, Jesus connects fasting with mourning to show that the one fasting is unsatisfied and longing for deeper fellowship with God. All of that makes sense. We get that. It's longing. I want something more. But then, listen, in order to explain why his disciples aren't fasting, Jesus makes a jaw-dropping connection from the Old Testament. Look at verse 15 again. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So if fasting has this sort of form of mourning attached to it, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So here, listen, Jesus uses a well-known Old Testament metaphor for God as husband. God as husband or God as bridegroom. And then Jesus unapologetically applies that Old Testament metaphor as God as husband to himself. This was our call to worship this morning. Listen to Isaiah 54 verses 4 and 5 one more time. God is speaking, fear not for you will not be ashamed Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your, what? Husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your maker is your husband. And the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called Also in Hosea 2, verses 16 to 20, in that day the prophet declares declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of Baal from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things in the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. This picture of a wedding, this husband and this bride and the betrothal, this covenant that is forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So then... Jesus, knowing these and other Old Testament metaphors for God as husband, Jesus decides to use that metaphor for husband and bridegroom to explain why his disciples are not fasting but feasting. Jesus is saying the reason my disciples aren't fasting is because at this very moment, they don't need to long for a God who is unseen. Because in this very moment, They are feasting and they are celebrating because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is in their midst in me. This means the messianic age has dawned in the coming of Christ. What do I mean by messianic age? This time, this age of the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the king of glory who would sit on David's throne forever, who would replace prophet, priest, and king. This messianic age, Jesus is saying, has come. The bridegroom is here. 
So if my disciples, Jesus is saying, if my disciples were fasting while the bridegroom is here, that would look as ridiculous as a a wedding party at a reception fasting. Right? None of us would go to a, 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 be a part of a wedding party. Hey, you want to be in my, want to be in my wedding? Sure, that sounds good. Only, only catch is you can't eat during the reception. Like, no, I think I'm busy that day. I think I'm, I'll be eating somewhere else. That's a ridiculous thing. The, the reception is a time of celebration. It is a time of, of welcoming the new couple in and feasting and celebrating. Jesus is saying, if my disciples were fasting right now, It would look ridiculous because the bridegroom is here. The husband of Israel has come and he's come to wed himself to his redeemed people. Therefore, Jesus says, it is not a time to fast. It is a time to feast. But then he says, there is a time that is coming when my disciples will fast. When the bridegroom is taken away, and this is a clear reference to his death, resurrection, and ascension, there will come a time when my disciples will long again to be in the presence of the husband, to be in the presence of the bridegroom, and there will be fasting in that time. But in this moment, the bridegroom is here, and it is time to celebrate The second and third parable, that's the first and main of the three, but the second and third parable serve to highlight now the newness of this messianic age. This is a new age. This is a hinge point in redemptive history. And these two parables come in verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk or new cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So this is pretty self-explanatory, but if you have an old garment, an old shirt that you've washed many times, it got washed, wet, dried many times, and you get a hole in that garment, it would be a fool's errand to take a new patch of unshrunk cloth to patch that hole, because as soon as you wash it one more time, the patch is going to shrink up, and you're going to have a worse hole than you had to begin with. And so again, Jesus is teaching about the newness of this messianic age. There is this new thing, and if you attach this new thing to the old thing, it's going to rip it apart. And the second metaphor or parable, he says, neither, verse 17 is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. I remember as a kid hearing about wineskins and wine bursting and I, I, I never understood what that meant. I always thought as a kid, like, why don't they just put it in a bottle like we do? Then you avoid this entire problem. Obviously, there's no bottles back then. There's no no glasssmiths that are producing these bottles. What they would use is skins, animal skins, and they would usually use the neck portion of a goat or a lamb or a ram, and they would use the neck portion, then they would tie it up, and if it was for new wine, they would make sure it was a fresh wineskin. Because the skin still had moisture in it and it was, it was elastic, it, can, it could expand as the wine went in. So when you put new wine in something to ferment, 
over time, that wine expands because of the gases. It ferments, kind of gross, and it expands in the new wineskins. But it's important that the wineskins are new because it needs to flex with the expanding and fermenting wine. If you put new wine in an old, crusty, already stretched out wineskin, you are going to burst the wineskins and you're going to lose the wine and the wineskins. So Jesus says, again, teaching about the newness of the messianic age, that the bursting, fermenting wine of the new covenant is come, and therefore the housings of the old are not sufficient to carry the newness of the messianic age. And so he's saying, because the long-awaited bridegroom has come, and therefore, again, the dawn of the messianic age is here, the old vehicles, the old wineskins, the old garments of Judaism are not sufficient to house the gospel of the kingdom. Now, Jesus in no way, listen, some have taken this new and old metaphor and thought, well, I guess we don't need the Old Testament. That's the old wineskins. Why even read that? It would be, it would be a, a terrible disaster to come to that conclusion. In fact, it would actually be unchristlike because Christ was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. This text in no way is suggesting that we abandon the Old Testament for its relevance and its moral teaching. In fact, I would say that the coming of the Messianic age makes the Old Testament all the more pregnant with insight, all the more vital that we read it now with Christ in focus. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that all of the Old Testament, all of the methods and rhythms for addressing sin have led us to this moment when the bridegroom would come and marry himself to his bride. Therefore, if you try to sow Jesus, if you try to sow Jesus onto the old garments of Judaism, he'll tear the whole thing apart. If you try to pour Jesus into the old wineskins of temple, priest, and sacrifice, he will burst the seams. Why? Because Jesus is the one for whom all of these shadows were pointing to. He is the substance. He is not a new shadow. He is not a patch that goes on to Judaism. He is a whole new substance, a whole new paradigm for worship. And so, the point of these three parables is this. The dawning of the messianic age has arrived in Christ. And so the disciples of John are asking the question about fasting, and they get way more than what they were looking for. They get a lesson in redemptive history. Now, for John's disciples, the Pharisees, the scribes, we... We can tend to now 2,000 years removed from this moment, just roll our eyes all of the time at the critics of Jesus. I don't think we should be so quick to roll our eyes at the critics of Jesus. 
They have been living, steeping in the rituals and patterns and biblical paradigms of Old Testament Judaism all of their lives and their family and their ancestors all of their lives. And now there comes bursting onto the scene this Messiah who says, all of that was pointing to me. And by the way, if you try to just add me to it, I'll blow the whole thing up. So you can imagine the, the hard pill, redemptively, this was to swallow for John's disciples, for the Pharisees. Maybe not for us. I was trying to think of how to apply this text, this brief but punchy text to our lives. I don't imagine there are too many of us in here struggling to realize or come to grips with the fact that we are living in the new covenant messianic age. There may be some of you that are struggling there, but most of us are pretty well convinced that we are in the church age. We are living in the new covenant. Most of us are pretty well convinced that Christ is the Messiah and that he died and rose and ascended into, into heaven. So how do we apply a text like this other than understanding its redemptive importance? I think there is a principle embedded in this text that directly applies to our lives, and it's, and it's this. Jesus makes an all-or-nothing proposition with us. Jesus makes an all-or-nothing proposition. We see this throughout the Gospels. If you try, here's what I mean, if you try to sew a little patch of Jesus onto the garments of your existing lives, he'll tear a hole in the whole thing. He'll, he'll mess with your life. <laughs> Jesus refuses to be a patch. He's a complete garment. Paul says in Romans 13 to put on Christ. He doesn't say put on a piece of Jesus. He says to put on all of Christ, the whole Christ, the whole garment, or not at all. It's an all or nothing proposition. And you can imagine as this relates to redemptive history, Jews in the first century are saying, but shouldn't we keep circumcision at least? Let's just keep that. And the church says, no. It's all or nothing. Well, we can just keep you know, sacrificing in the temple. Jesus says, no, I'm going to tear down the temple. And I'm going to raise one up again in my resurrection. It's all or nothing. And it's true in our lives as well. If we try to pour some Jesus into our existing structures of faith and religion, he will burst the seams. Human religion cannot contain his fermenting power. In other words, Jesus Christ is not an additive to our lives. Jesus is not a sanctified shot of wheatgrass in the morning. Jesus is not a supplement. He's a substitute. It is an all or nothing proposition with him. And this is really good news. <laughs> Jesus is not giving us an all-or-nothing proposition because he is a killjoy. He's giving us an all-or-nothing proposition because he is joy. He is joy. Jesus wasn't an aftermarket addition to ancient Judaism. 
That's what some of his critics wanted him to just be an aftermarket addition. We already have a nice car, Jesus. It's been humming along for a few centuries, more than a few centuries. Let's just make you an aftermarket addition to this whole thing. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to blow up the engine if that happens. It was all pointing to me. And if this is true of 4,000 years of religious history, is it not true of our lives? And beloved, if I can just, just level with you, this becomes the hardest. This application becomes the hardest when hard times come. Because when hard times come, there is a kind of wooing, a new temptation to put on old garments again for comfort. When, when hard times come, whatever the form is, we, we can begin to think, oh, before Christ, this is what I used to do. This is what I used to think. Just a little more alcohol would sort of numb the pain. And even as Christians... When hard times come, there is this temptation, isn't there, to revert back to unwise comforts. In fact, if you're interested in, in some extracurricular reading, the whole book of Hebrews is written to a church in the first century who is tempted to do that very thing. When persecution is coming in, you got Nero on the rise and actual life and death. If I say I'm a Christian, chances are I'm going to get sewn to a back of a wild boar and be eaten alive. Was Judaism that bad? Maybe if we revert back to Judaism, we can avoid this sort of persecution and get a kind of comfort in the moment that will give us a sort of aspirin to get us through the day. And the author of Hebrews, the whole letter, it's actually a sermon that's saying, no Christians, don't revert back. Don't revert back. Stay the course. Christ is not a fixture in the home. He's the whole foundation. If you make him a piece of your life, you abandon the whole thing. Stay the course. He is worth your life. He is worth your death. There is no reverting back. There's no sowing Jesus onto old forms and customs of your life. And beloved, the, the, what I'm trying to get across is, if that's true of ancient Judaism, is that not true of our lives? Especially when hard things come in. The scriptures do not exhort us to sow Jesus onto our existing lives. The scriptures exhort us to make Jesus the absolute center and substance of our lives. So how do you do that? I have no idea <laughs> other than pleading with God, especially when hard times come, new hardship that surprises you and it tempts you to take that low-hanging fruit of whatever used to be that old garment of comfort to say, oh God, I, I see it. I see the temptation. I see it. Oh God, be the center and substance of my life. I remember, I remember, Lord, when you were talking to, to John's disciples and you said, don't sew a little patch onto an old garment. And I'm tempted to do that right now. I'm tempted to sew a little patch of Jesus onto this old garment. Lord, you said you're going to tear it apart. I need you to be the sum and substance of my life. And so here's the text. This is the point of the text. 
The long-awaited bridegroom has come. This is a huge redemptive shift in history. The dawning of the messianic age has arrived. Jesus is the bursting wine of the new covenant. And he has given us the garments of salvation. May we put on Christ, all of him. May we put on the whole Christ and treat him as he is, the substance, the center of our lives, the king of our lives, the Lord of our lives. And may we plead that the Holy Spirit would give us presence of mind, especially in those moments when we're tempted to sew him onto old garments. I'm going to lead us, uh, Hans, in the, in the table this morning. But let me, let's go before the Lord uh, this morning. Father in heaven, it is important for us to know the redemptive flow of salvation from the old covenant to the new, how Jesus, you are the bridegroom of Israel and now the true Israel, those all redeemed by Christ. You've come to marry yourself to us. And Lord, we confess that we have a leak. We have a leak somewhere. We come in Sunday after Sunday, which you have prescribed that we come together on the Lord's day to be reminded of these truths. And then by Wednesday, we're tempted again. So Lord, here we are. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't want to pretend like we don't have a leak or we aren't forgetful. So Spirit, we're asking that you would remind us of texts like these when we're tempted to sow Jesus on, to pour Jesus into existing structures, when you've given us an all or nothing proposition, proposition Jesus, would you, would you come? Would you, for those of us here who are feeling particularly convicted that we've done that, Lord, would you, you, you invite us to come and to take your yoke up, upon us You are very good in all of your dealings. You're gentle and lowly. You want good for us. And so, Lord, help us to unyoke ourselves from things that we know won't satisfy and to yoke ourselves to you, the only one who can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.